World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The scale of the flow of people created by the war in Ukraine is hard to fathom. Many refugees are finding work, schools, housing, but neither they nor their host country's governments can plan for how long they're setting up home. And across much of America's upper Midwest, ice fishing is, for some reason, a beloved winter pastime. But technology is changing it, and climate change threatens its future. Our correspondent reports from a frozen lake in Minnesota. But first... For the past two years, inflation has been public enemy number one. Enormous demand late in the pandemic, fueled by vast amounts of cash handed out to citizens in big economies, put an end to the era of low interest rates. The FOMC raised our policy interest rate by 25 basis points. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. That's central banker speak for buckle up for more interest rate rises, which have been coming again and again and again across big economies. And the strain is showing all over. Here in Britain, for example, one sector after another is going on strike, workers battling to keep their pay within sight of ever-rising prices. The big question for investors, for policymakers, for everyone, for me and you, is when will inflation come back down? On the one hand, you have a growing number of investors and some analysts that really think the worst is behind us and that before long, inflation could be falling very rapidly back towards the kind of 2% target that everyone's looking for. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist. But then on the other hand, you have in particular central bankers who are warning us that there's still a very long way to go. Well, let's start by talking about the the optimistic case. Why is there a growing cohort of people who think that the worst is behind us? So there's been a large number of data releases in recent weeks that have given the optimists a lot of ammunition. Uh, In particular, some recent data from the US on consumer price inflation has been kind of pretty good, has come in lower than people were expecting it to. But this is true more widely if you look beyond the US. So in 25 of 36 OECD countries for which there are monthly data, headline inflation is falling. It's true, for example, that forecasted had expected Europe's inflation to be about 9% in January But then the official estimate that came in in early February was 8.5%, so quite considerably lower. And so if you look at what people kind of are expecting, 
to happen over the coming years. The expectation for markets now is that the Fed will be closing in on its 2% inflation target in early 2024, so really only about a year away. And so all of that fodder for optimism is the reason why markets have been doing pretty well this year? Right. So a lot of markets have had a pretty good start to the year. And that's really because if we do have the return of low inflation, essentially that means there's less need for central banks to raise interest rates. It could also mean that they can prioritize economic growth, i.e. it would make them more willing to cut rates when necessary if a downturn looms. And so this does appear to be what investors are expecting. You know, for example, the S&P 500, which is the one that people watch, I guess, most closely, is up by around 8% this year. And emerging market stocks are up too. And what about the pessimistic case then? What do central bankers see in all of this? Well, they are very keen to remind people that there is a long way to go in this disinflationary process. So, for example, in early February, you had Jerome Powell, who's the chairman of the Fed, saying that disinflation has a long way to go. And then on the same day, Isabel Schnabel of the European Central Bank warned that underlying upward pressure on prices remained, in her words, extraordinarily high. And so what you can really see when you read the speeches and and the reports of central banks and central bankers is that they're they're still very worried that their economies and in particular their labour markets are overheating. And so you've got this situation where, yes, they are slowing the pace at which they are raising interest rates. They want to stop and see what tighter monetary policy will do to the economy. But on the other hand, they are very wary of repeating the mistakes of the 1970s when basically monetary policy was loosened kind of prematurely in response to falling inflation, only for prices to surge once more. So there's clearly a real gap here between investors and central bankers in in terms of what they see. Why is that gap so big now? What is it about the situation that makes that gap so big? Well, to be frank, I think it sort of reflects how poor our understanding of inflation remains, even after close to three years of this inflationary episode. People still don't have a good idea of what will cause inflation to go up, what will cause inflation to stay high, or what will cause inflation to come down. So there's loads of things to bear in mind. There's the pandemic era stuff like red hot demand for goods and electronics and chips and all that kind of stuff. There's the effect of fiscal stimulus. And then there's also things like worker bargaining power, strikes, all that kind of thing. And so you've really got two views. One is that this bout of inflation is transitory, or temporary, and that the forces that drove it, such as super high stimulus in 2020 and 2021, are now receding, and that means inflation will recede. But then if you look at something else, and it really it's personal preference, really what you decide to look at, such as labour markets, you might see a totally different picture. So if you look really across the world, labour markets are still extremely tight. Yes, there have been lots of headlines of layoffs at big banks and technology firms, but Really, you know, that we're talking about a small number of people here. When you consider everyone, unemployment is super, super, super low, pretty much everywhere. And wage growth is super, super, super high. You know, in a world where productivity growth is weak and you have wage growth of in the region of four to five to six percent a year, that just is going to be inflationary. There's sort of no two ways about it. And so if you focus on labor markets, I think you end up in a much more worried position than if you focus on pandemic-related stuff. It seems odd that that such contrasting views on what's going to happen can come up from looking at two different sets of numbers that everyone can see. I mean, how have we ended up in this situation where there is that divergence? 
That is a very good question. So there's a couple of things going on. I mean, the psychology of markets is in a sense arbitrary. There's times when people are super scared and selling everything. And there's times when people are super bullish and they're buying everything. Markets are really skittish at the moment. They're, they're kind of volatile. I think you can make the case that kind of investors are looking for a reason to be optimistic. Last year was really, really bad. And there's a kind of general hope that we won't have the same thing again. So that, in a sense, could explain why investors are looking for good news. But then, on the other hand, you have central bankers. And you have to remember the history here, which is that you know no central banker wants to go down in history as the man or the woman that let inflation get out of control. Arthur Burns, rather unfairly as it happens, is in central bank land, shorthand for the guy who was in charge of the Fed in the 1970s who let inflation get out of control. And Jerome Powell does not want to be known as that guy. So his incentive, and indeed the incentives really of all central bankers, are to really, really, really be certain that inflation is down before they are willing to say that the war has been won. And so they have an incentive to be more hawkish. Okay, sensible cases on both sides of this question. Which side of this question do you fall on? Who's right here? I think it's quite hard to get beyond the labor market, to be honest. If you look at various measures of inflation that are sort of plausibly related to the labor market, they are still very, very strong. So, for example, if you look at core inflation, which basically strips out most of the volatile components in the inflation basket, so basically food and energy, in most countries, that doesn't show so much sign of turning. And then if you go one step kind of more wonkish, so you look at something called core services inflation, which is basically the sorts of services that are super reliant on labor costs. So for example, like hotels and restaurants, that sort of thing, that is still rising in most countries. And so if that's running at kind of six to 7%, which it is in most places, it's quite hard to really see how Uh, inflation can get to 2% anytime soon. So I end up on the kind of higher for longer perspective. But I don't think inflation is going to sort of spiral. And this was certainly a concern for some of 2022, that inflation was just going to go higher and higher and higher over time. I really don't think that's going to happen. But I do think it will be really quite some time before we're back at the low inflation norm of 2019 and before. Thanks very much for your time, Callum. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Russia's invasion of Ukraine sparked the biggest wave of refugees in Europe since the Second World War. Millions of people have scattered across the continent. For smaller countries, such as Estonia, that mass migration has markedly boosted the population. But it's in Germany and Poland that an especially large number of Ukrainians fleeing the war have found refuge. Almost a year on from the start of the war, how are those refugees and their host countries faring? 
So we have up to 8 million Ukrainian refugees across Europe. That includes refugees in Russia. Tom Nuttall is a senior editor at The Economist. Inside the EU, we've got nearly 5 million Ukrainians who have registered under something called the Temporary Protection Directive. Very jargony, but it's an EU law. It's been invoked for the first time. And what that does, it gives Ukrainian refugees, almost all of whom are women, by the way, instant access to labor markets. It gives them residency rights. And it kind of short circuits the asylum system. If you apply for asylum, that can take months. This thing means that Ukrainians are able to live and to work and to obtain benefits and get their kids into school instantly as soon as they arrive and register inside an EU country. So all in all, I think the big picture is that things have gone pretty much as well as might have been expected given the scale of the numbers. But obviously, there are all sorts of problems and difficulties and uncertainties. And of that enormous number of refugees, what do we know about how many are are intending to go home eventually? So there are lots of surveys that ask refugees exactly that question. There was one from the UN's refugee agency last September that found that 81% of Ukrainian refugees in Europe hoped to return home. But when you actually talk to people who have set up home in Europe, you realize that there's often something very complicated going on. People need to get on with their lives. They need to have their kids in school. They need to find housing for themselves. They need to find jobs. And so it's a very, very complicated question. Lots of people will tell you that they want to go home, but at the same time will be making often quite serious preparations for a long-term, possibly even a permanent stay in the countries in which they now find themselves. Now, you mentioned there some of the concerns that people have as they're trying to sort of uh, live between these two worlds. What are the most important ones? So I think... One interesting issue is schooling. Most adult refugees, most of the women brought children with them. Every European country, of course, has opened its schooling system to refugee children. But lots of them do not want their kids to fall out of the Ukrainian schooling system. So what you often find is that kids are sent to a local school during the day. And then late in the afternoon or in the evening, their parents, usually their mother, will homeschool them using textbooks that they might have been sent by a Ukrainian school. An alternative model that you find particularly in Poland, because the Polish government does not oblige refugee children to attend Polish schools, is that kids simply do online distance learning with schools inside Ukraine. Now, that is good for parents who don't want their kids to fall out of the Ukrainian schooling system. It's less good for integration, of course. These kids are not learning Polish. They're not meeting their peers at school. They're not living a life in Poland. And so I think that encapsulates the dilemma quite neatly of how you forge a new life for yourself and a new home when you retain this aspiration to return home one day. And, and what about working age refugees? That's always a question when there are large migration movements about how they'll fit into local labor markets. Yeah, so this is crucial, of course. Probably the best work has been done by the OECD, a rich country think tank, That says that Ukrainian refugees appear to be finding work much more quickly than typical refugee cohorts. And in some countries, including Britain, Denmark and the Netherlands, it looks like more than half of Ukrainian women have found work less than a year after they arrived. You talk to migration refugee experts, um, they will tell you that the typical refugee cohort can take up to 10 years to reach that point of 50 percent of people in work. So that is to say that broadly Ukrainians are are finding work, good work, easily. 
Um, yeah, I mean, as you will always find with refugees, there's a lot of skills mismatch, a lot of underemployment, perhaps a lot of people who are working part-time when they want to be working full-time. A number of reasons for that. Language is one barrier. Of course, childcare might be another one. People may be sent by governments to live in places where there aren't particularly lively job markets and so on. But again, you talk to migration experts and they will tell you that at this stage, underemployment is not necessarily a desperate problem in the sense that for people, particularly for people who are planning to stay for the long term, it's better for them to find their feet, for them to learn the language, for them to figure out how a labor market works before they attempt to find work that's truly commensurate to their skills. And in the meantime, they are able to begin the work of integration often by taking work at a lower level than their education level, their skills level. And you can take Nadia, who's one Ukrainian we interviewed. She's from Nikopol in southeast Ukraine and is now living in Warsaw. She told us it was very important for her to find a job and she managed to find work in a factory packing crisps. <laughs> but she basically laughed when she told us how different this work was from her old job in Ukraine, where she worked as a legal advisor with her own office. But while she understands she's clearly in Poland for a while, she also insists that it's not forever. She will definitely go back. And this is a message that you hear from a lot of people that you will meet. And what about the, the situation from the host country's side? No one was expecting that things were going to last this long. So how warm will the welcome remain, do you think? I think there's two questions there. In some places, there is a sense that the welcome may be beginning to fray to a certain extent. You've seen rental prices skyrocket in lots of Polish cities. Um, there's a little bit of discontent about competition for public services and so on. I wouldn't want to exaggerate that, but there are signs of that in places. I think a bigger question, as you suggest, Jason, is a dilemma that host governments are facing. And that is, when you've got this substantial population of refugees, many of whom will say that they want to go home, but you don't know when they're going to be able to go home or under what circumstances. What do you do about integration policy? How much should you invest in language teaching or should you oblige children to attend local schools? How much should you spend on retraining to bridging courses to lift refugees into work that's commensurate with their skills? I mean, different countries are tackling this in different ways. France and Sweden, for example, they have a sort of statutory integration package on the number of hours of language learning you get and so on. They're not yet offering that full package to Ukrainians precisely because they believe that many of them will not stick around for that long. In Germany, you take a different approach. They're going very aggressively for full integration as soon as possible. So I think this is something to watch carefully as the months go by and as refugees continue to integrate. And I think that dilemma that governments face is sort of mirrored by the situation that a lot of refugees um, find themselves in. You're in a country that's taken you in and the welcome has been warm. But what do you do when you retain that aspiration to return home one day but the war is dragging on. Perhaps the part of the country that you come from is in tatters. You need to make some sort of plan for the future. And it, the, the longer that the war drags on, the longer that people stay in the countries that have taken them in, the more that they will have to make some sort of commitment to a future in that country rather than the country to which they retain the aspiration to return. And in the meantime, you have lots of people who are just left leading lives of limbo. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason.
I recently went to Minnesota. Specifically, I went to the St. Croix River, which is on the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent. This time of year, Minnesota gets pretty cold. It's well below freezing most of the time. And what that means is it's peak ice fishing season. You walk out onto the ice. It's almost surreal. You look out and you can see spread all across the ice. I counted about six or seven tents. Um, have you had any luck today? Caught any fish yet? No. How do you usually, you know, come away with like... Uh, we did last week. Yeah. Inside these tents are people sitting, some of them with a beer, some of them with a radio on, you know, fishing away. Ice fishing might seem like a niche activity to many people, but in Minnesota in particular, and indeed across the Midwest, it is incredibly popular. In 2020, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, which manages fishing licenses, sold 1.2 million, which is one for almost every five residents of the state. And that was the highest number in two decades. And if you kind of talk to people who fish, they tell you that of that kind of amount, a growing number are people fishing primarily in the winter. The summer fishing has actually probably become less popular in, in recent years. Daniel, I'm a summer fisherman who likes to explore the great indoors during the winter. So I have to ask, why is it so popular? So I think the appeal of ice fishing is that you get to sit out on the ice. It's quiet. It's kind of calm. It's often quite beautiful. And these days it's getting a lot easier, a lot more comfortable. The gear and the technology involved has improved so much. So people have these kind of windproof tents, they have little portable heaters, they have these great big thick coats. So you're not at all cold, you know, you're quite sheltered and it's getting easier to fish. What people have nowadays is they have sonars that they can drop under the ice to look for the fish. Ah, I think that's a fish. I think that's a fish. Let's jump. So, yeah, okay, I see it's flashing. Yeah. We'll see that. One of the ice fishermen I met on the St. Croix River is a guy called Justin Fodor. And have you had any luck today? You caught anything? No, not, not any luck today. Um, it, that's the cool part, honestly. Throughout the years, you get better with better sonars. So now, now I have a really good sonar. I'm seeing the fish, I'm just not catching anything. So Justin told me that when he'd started ice fishing, he'd come out one winter with just a drill, a table and a chair and his like summer fishing gear. Since then, he's bought a sonar and it really does make the job easier. Because of the new technology, it's more like a video game now. It's rather than if you actually wanted to sit out in the cold. Incredible. So it's, it changed, yes. It brought a lot more people because of technology, I would say. But it's not only a sonar that he's invested in. He's also got this kind of folding tent hut. It's like a hut that you can kind of just fold out on the ice in a couple of minutes. He bought a battery-powered auger, which is kind of ice drill that basically cuts through a foot of ice almost instantly, and a portable heater. And the big thing that's taken off in the last kind of five or six years in ice fishing is what people call wheelhouses. These are basically a sort of caravan that you pull out onto the ice. You might tow it with a truck or a snowmobile, and it fixes 
into the ice and the fanciest ones they might have generators satellite tvs stoves people have even got showers fitted in them so not only are more people being drawn into the sport the people buying these wheelhouses they can fish for days they can go out for a whole weekend one of the manufacturers a company called ice castle fish houses basically advertises as a way to escape your mother-in-law i'm envisioning these houses when they're not on the ice just gathering dust in people's garages Do you think that's their fate? Or do you think this ice fishing boom is more than just a fad? It's going to keep going for a while. But I think one of the risks is global warming. And Minnesota's cold enough that most of its lakes have been fishable this year. But a lot of parts of the Midwest, around Chicago or parts of Ohio, where normally you would be able to fish at this time of year on the ice, lakes are barely frozen because they had such a warm January. Other parts of America where people are into ice fishing, like Maine, for example, the authorities have had to warn people not to go out on the ice as much because it's been unusually thin. And even in Minnesota, you know, when I was there, people were saying, well, the ice isn't as as thick everywhere as it is normally bit more nervous about taking your truck out, which if you've got one of these wheelhouses, well, that's a problem. If the planet keeps getting warmer, you know, people might have to start using their wheelhouses in the summer more as ice fishing is going to get harder. All right, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, John. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.